an epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app and answer a few questions. With Angie, you can book instantly at an upfront price or request and compare quotes from multiple pros so you can find the best price for your project. So the next time you have a home project, just Angie that and start getting the most out of your home. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome to the Nerds Podcast number 539. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Chris. How you doing, pal? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm good. Your, your beard's looking real nice, I gotta I've, be honest. I've been trimming it and trying to make it look nice for the summer and stuff. It's like a facial topiary. Oh, it's fun. It's like a bonsai on. tree. Why don't you shape into like an elephant or something? Or oh, like that's a-, a good idea. I was thinking of doing like the alligator. Like, oh. So it's like some teeth, but I like sort of a more peaceful animal like that. Yeah, the problem is you'd have to grow your. I feel like you you could do the trunk maybe off the beard, but it would take it would take a while. It's true. Although, do I do? No, that's the way you'd want to go with it. I'm trying to figure out if I can do like a mustache trunk situation. You can't because no. you won't be able to get your mustache bushy enough. Most definitely. Oh, my mustache can get real bushy. But it's not gonna. It's not. <laughs> Trim your bush. <laughs> Come on. No, it's seventies are coming back, right? No, 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 they're never coming. No, back. no, I can never be. You're, you're not even. You're not even going to see the two thousand seventies, probably. But I just want, like, how is my like seventy style porn career supposed to get off if that doesn't come back? How are you supposed to get off? Is the question. Yeah, unless that seventy style porn career comes in. Well, I guess those dreams will go wildly unfulfilled. Oh God, no! I've been trying to build this Burt Reynolds body for nothing. You know what I just realized is talking about this elephant topiary. Our sponsor is Trunk Club. Totally by accident did I talk about the elephant Ladies and gentlemen, professional Chris Hardwick. I mean, totally on purpose did I spin it around to Trunk Club. Uh, But basically... It's a trunk full of clubs, yes? It's not a trunk full of clubs. Oh, I've been misinformed. Please tell me about this product. So you wear clothes. I do. I'm doing so now. Do you stress out about buying clothes? All the time. Okay, so Trunk Club is a service that helps guys discover amazing clothes that are perfect for them without ever having to go shopping. They have incredible inventory, uh, and they will give you a personal stylist. That will ask you a bunch of questions, and then you, and then they will. S- they only need to know two things: tech vest and performance fleece. <laughs> Don't listen to Kyle. And then, <laughs> this is the guy who wanted to grow a trunk off his mustache. Uh, but they, but then they basically will send you stuff that they think would be right for you, uh, and it probably will be. And then you basically just keep the stuff that you want and send the rest back. And you only pay for the stuff that you actually use. And it takes the guesswork out of shopping. There's no upfront commitments. There, uh, there's no shipping costs. You have 10 days to try everything on and send it back. Oh, um, nice. And so that just gives you some time to sort of sit with it and live with it and let your significant other tell you if it looks good on you or not. It's not, Trunk Club's not a monthly subscription service. They will only send you a trunk when you request one. Just reach out to your stylist and when you're ready to go and oh, ship it. I can it. tell people I have a stylist. You can do that as well. Oh, my God. Also, there's an iPhone app so you can do it from your phone uh, give you an instant access I can be on my phone beep boop beep stylus I need more tech vests that's right and you'll see all your trunk club outfits there so visit 
trunkclub.com slash nerdist to learn more trunkclub.com slash nerdist to learn more thanks to them for sponsoring this episode of the nerdist podcast which is uh my old pal adam rogers who is my or well i guess technically i still contribute to wired i haven't written for them in a long time i never left and they never told me to fuck off (laughs) um adam is me that's the setup to some weird comedy someday (laughs) where you like have to write a thousand articles in a week yeah and that's that's sort of you're what it, played by Eddie Murphy. Uh, is he in a fat suit? Yeah. Oh, that'd be weird. Well, it's rewritten for the screen. Chris. Oh, it's gotcha. like the okay. adaptation okay. of the real story versus what actually ends up in the movie. Uh, Clump Club. Come on, guys. You are on it today. I can't help it. My they're just, God. They're just coming to Firing me. Firing on all cylinders. <laughs> I know. As soon as this recording device goes off, then I just shut down. Yeah, he has to get his blood replaced every yeah, yeah, day. Don't, by the way, don't talk to me when these microphones go off. Oh, I'm, I know that. Gonna... <laughs> okay, that was too real the way you said it. Adam is one of the, literally one of the smartest people I know, um, and he was my editor at Wired. He's a senior editor at Wired Magazine, uh, and he wrote a book called Proof, The Science of Booze, uh, which is now available wherever books are sold, but I adore Adam. You mean on websites where books are sold? <laughs> and Ben Powell's. Yes. <laughs> so uh, here's Nerds Podcast number 539. Uh, Adam, I believe, is at Jet Jocko on Twitter, by the way. It's a good handle. It's a great, great handle. Uh, Nerds Podcast number 539 with Adam Rogers. Now entering Nerdist.com. Adam Rogers has written a book. Um, <laughs> well, isn't like that adorable? <laughs> should I, I feel like I should try to deny it all of a sudden. No, no I didn't I write did, a book. I mean, that's not, I don't. It has your name on it. I, there's, it could be the jazz guitarist, Adam Rogers. As far as I can tell, there's only one Adam Rogers in the world. I, I don't, I just, I, I would have, if I, should I have told you first? I don't. Uh... <laughs> Mr. Adam Rogers. Um, well, uh, just to give people some background information, I've known Adam Rogers since 2007 when we were employed on the Wired Science PBS show. That's right. Which was uh, a tremendous amount of fun for me. And it, that show was uh, the catalyst of a lot of things because that was the first, I guess maybe around July of 2007. I made the decision that I was only going to work in areas that were of interest to me in terms of... <laughs> Which seems, in, it seems like intuitive and obvious in retrospect. It's not, it's not always it, obvious. But it wasn't. It's not. It's not always obvious to everyone because you just don't... You know, I think, especially when it comes to work, maybe this is an old idea, but there, there was this notion of, uh, no, work is a thing that someone tells you that you're good enough to do and you, you don't necessarily enjoy it. You just do it because that's what you're supposed to do. And you don't really, you know, most people think don't really question that. And I, I certainly was in work survival mode, which is like, I just have to take any job cause I got to survive. And, um, so, but in 2007, I said, I'm only going to take jobs I actually care about. At least if I'm not going to be employed, I would at least rather be, Losing jobs that meant something to me rather than losing jobs that I didn't want and still feeling bad about them. You know, I, I had very much the same advice when I first started working on the book, actually. And, and, and some of the, you know, some of the thinking about doing the book while I was 
also full-time at Wired still, a lot of that came out of, honestly, conversations that you and I had while we were doing the show. And then after that, as we kept in touch, you know, uh, um, Matt Bai, who's a great political journalist, said at the beginning of, I think either right before I'd gotten the book contract or right after it, he said, you know, make sure, he said, people are going to tell you to do a lot of things in the book in the interest of having the book sell. And he said, and don't listen to them because no book sells. Your book won't sell. <laughs> and he's like, he was like, no offense, but it won't because books don't sell. So when it doesn't sell, you want to make sure that when you're sitting at your dining room table and you're looking at it on a shelf, that you can look at the book and say, well, at least it's the book I wanted to write. Yes, because right. nothing... Well, yes, a lot of things do feel worse than what I'm about to say. <laughs> but physical pain, for physical, example. Physical pain is very bad. Um, getting hit by an asteroid sure, is, that, is horrible. Be terrible. Yeah. But, um, but at the end of the day, when you take a swing at so- when you take a pandering swing at something and you miss, yeah. that is a very difficult emotional thing to recover from because you just you just felt like not only was I scared because I acted out of fear and. Um, and then it failed, and then I have to live with the fact that I gave in to fear, and it failed, as opposed to... And you're like, geez, I can't even pander. I mean, yeah, can't. <laughs> Come on. Like, at least it's a pretty crowd-pleasy book. At I mean, least if a, you fail on your own terms, you can sleep at night. You, you can at right. least go, well, fuck, I don't know. I did, God, I did what I, everything I wanted to do, and it didn't work, and sometimes that happens, which is, you know, still hurts, but at least, at least you feel like you... You still did it, did it your way. So yeah, so I started work. You know, Wired was that when I made that decision, and I was looking through the breakdowns, the acting hosting breakdowns, and I see this thing, Wired PBS, and it came up, and I was like, "This is the show. I have to host the show." You had said, I, I remember talking about this. You'd said too that you had thought independently of that. You were saying you wanted to do a science show. That you wanted. To I did want to do a science show because I, I obviously was. Um, had a, a love of science and technology and also there's all this hosting experience and this certain voice that I had cultivated over the years of who, you know, getting to know who I am. And I just felt like no one, I, in my mind, I thought no one quite had that combination of things the way that I specifically did them. Yeah. And wired science came along and I was like, PBS science wired. Like these are all of the areas that I wanted. So that, that's where I met. I'm sorry to do an autobiography of myself, but, <laughs> uh, which is how you would do an autobiography. But, uh, but that's, but that's when I met you for the first time. And we became friends real fast. And you said, "Hey, you should start writing. Would you like to start writing for Wired?" And then you were my editor for, you know, the all the years that I would contribute. You yeah, know, technically, uh, still, you want to write? You got a pitch? Let's talk. <laughs> I, I mean, I, would, I still I, want to. I loved having you. You're super busy, but I, you were, you're. I love having you in the magazine. It's a real, it's a, it's a bonus. But you're, you're, an, you're, you have a really fascinating background, and you're also, um, you, you're, you're probably one of the smartest. You're, you're I was gonna say. I would put you in like the top three smartest people I know. You know a lot of smart people. Man, nah, but I would put you in the top three smartest people I know. <laughs> and and you're humble about it, so I don't think you would ever go, yeah, I'm real smart. But you but you are. I'm super smart, to be fair. <laughs> I was commenting the people who you knew also. That's what I was that's where I was. <laughs> uh, but you know, so let's talk about this a little bit because I feel like sometimes I've caught you in a weird sort of shame uh in a little bit of a shame spiral about how much um, seemingly pointless knowledge is floating around in your brain about <laughs> yes. things where you'll start spitting out facts and you'll just go, <clears throat> I'm sorry that I know all that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I actually choked on that. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I start... I, yeah, it's true. Sometimes I can get caught... Um, 
sort of downloading the file, you know? Where does that, where does that <laughs> self-smart shaming come from? Where does that come from? It comes from finally being self-aware enough and emotionally aware enough to, to notice when I'm in a room that I have now, like, shut down conversation in. <laughs> because I'm basically just... It's not... It, it ends up looking and feeling like showing off mm-hmm. retroactively. Yep. But it was just like, oh, here's the list of... Oh, you're talking about this thing. Here's the list of stuff. Can you think of an example? Can you think of a good example when someone was having a conversation and you came in with some... Uh, sh- yes. I'm, just I, one. I, well, uh, um, <laughs> I, I was with, uh, with some friends in a place that sold cigars. Mm-hmm. And we were like, let's try cigars. And I, I smoke you know, two cigars a year, right? But it is one of those things that I happen to have a lot of... I, I reported on a story about them, and I got interested, and so I did a lot of reading. And so they were like, "Well, does anybody know anything about this before we pick before we order?" You know, and I kind of went, "Well," uh, <laughs> and then it was, you know, and it's like, "Were your friends like uh, anyone else? <laughs> any other hands?" Ten minutes later, you know, here are a lot of you know shade grown tobacco from Virginia is used in the wrapper leaf. It's the outside. It's dried. Whereas most of the tobacco seeds used in cigars were originated in Cuba, but then after expropriation, when Castro came in, a lot of those people left and they plant. You know, it's that kind of stuff. You're like, oh, okay, we're doing that. But it's not just one sector. I've heard you drop comic book stuff. I've heard you drop film stuff. Like, <laughs> it's not just it's not just science stuff. It's like yeah. pop. There's like there's like pop culture. There are you know your. Your brain seems to be a, 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 like a storage unit, and each – it's more like a storage facility, and there are a bunch of different units, and you have access to all those units at all times. Uh, I, I, um, I have a pretty good memory, <laughs> and, uh, and I get – I mean, the, you, you know, you do this too, right? You get interested in something. Right, and so when you get interested, you start. I start keeping stuff in Evernote or take, cutting stuff out and putting it in places. And I, you know, I start remembering. And I start talking about it because I like building. I like knowing how stuff works, and I like building that into stories. So I start to kind of tell myself the story, like, oh, that connected to that, and that led to that, and and uh, you know, I, and I always wanted to be the kind of person who could do that. I guess that was sort of what my grandmother was like, and it was uh, like the people who I admired were able to, when people were talking at dinner, you know, in my family, the thing to be able to do would be to say, well, you know what's interesting about that? <laughs> <laughs> and, and actually have something that was interesting, you know, and then you could kind of build a conversation. It makes me terrible at small talk, actually. It makes me terrible at like, so how's your family? What is the way Because it's like always today? a deep dive? Yeah, because I'm just like, well, you know, or we could be talking about, like, who invented the kind of food that we're eating right now. But, I mean, I'm, I'm, it makes me very impolite. But as, but, as opposed to, but as opposed to some smarty pants people who don't have the ability to, they, who really only have the ability to kind of see their own, uh, their own vision and their own thoughts, one of the things that I loved about working with you as an editor is that you were really incredible about, I would send in a rough draft of something and then you could see everything, you know, from a, from a satellite view and say, here's what I think you're trying to say, and here are some questions you should be asking yourself about how you want this to develop, and you know, here's some things that I think you could snip at. I mean, like the, like the job of being a senior editor yeah. um, it is, is not an easy job to convey, because sometimes people will go, I don't know, just make it better, you know, but to be able to, to, be, to, be able to challenge someone in their own voice to say, here's how I think you should be looking at this and here are questions you should ask yourself. That is a very difficult thing to do. Well, you and I have a, um, 
had, and I hope will again, have a, a, an interesting relationship, editor-writer relationship, because our writing voices are actually very similar. Mm-hmm. So when I, when I ask questions or make changes, um, they, they, I think that they don't feel, they feel more organic to the piece. Like the piece as its own entity, the story as its own entity, is like, oh yeah, that is what this is supposed to sound like, mm-hmm. this thing that we are both working on. Yeah. Um, w- you know, one of the things that I work on as an editor all the time is not imposing my writerly voice on a, a, on very good writers who have a different way of saying stuff. And they tease me about it in the office. I have a few ticks in my writing that they'll mess with me about if they see it in an edit or in my own writing. They'll say, you're doing that thing again. I'm like, all right, take it out. You're right. It shouldn't be there. But, but I think um, th- that those things about structure, you know, as a, uh, that, that is a, the part of writing that I'm most interested in, I think, in a way. I mean, you sort of have voice, right? Truth and beauty, right? You have like the facts in it, the voice, and then the structure of a piece. And, and working with you on structure is always a lot of fun because you think about structure a lot in your writing when you're doing comedy, you think about it when you're doing the piece, and your ideas on structure are very different than my ideas on structure in good ways, right? So the, the stories that we worked on have been, I think, better for it, better for that interaction. And it's a part of the interaction of coming out with, a, a, with long journalistic pieces, whether they're online or in print, that most people don't um, tumble to until after they've been in the business for a while, is that interaction with an editor. You, know, you kick a piece in, and, like, and you're half done. Oh, yeah, yeah, and then it starts. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, get a, you get a minute of satisfaction of like, oh, I just met that deadline. And then three days later, you know, you get all the red marks and all of the, That's right. you know, well, how about this and how about this? Like, oh, and then that was my, that was my kind of least favorite thing about writing my book. And I'm curious to know what yours was, but it was the getting back the notes after the first draft. Like, oh, I have to think about all this shit now. Oh, I just spit, like spitting everything out on a page is literally the first of many steps. I was pretty... I was pretty okay with kicking in and saying, all right, now the work starts. I was, I had internalized that. At least I thought I had internalized that when I turned in my first, my first draft, which of course wasn't my first draft, but the first thing I was willing to show my editor and, and her notes when they came back, her notes were, were pretty rough. Um, it was, I had a couple of really dark weeks because, <laughs> because the notes came back and they were, they were like on, on several chapters. They were like, uh, you know, this isn't really a chapter. Like you need to make this a chapter in a book, like as if you were writing a book chapter. You know, are you good of. at taking notes like that? Or are you like, I think I know what's good about. I've been an editor for a long time. Well, um, I was. I uh, we'd have to ask Courtney. I mean, you know, my <laughs> I think my outwardly was like, thank you for all the time you took with this. This these are great notes, and I will go back and I will do my best to either execute them or execute something that solves the problem you have shown in a different way, which is what, you know, as an editor, you always hope the interaction with your writer is going to be like, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, the hard, I I tell some new writers this sometimes the hardest thing, one of the hardest things to do is in the email when you kick in your draft is to not write all of the things that you think are wrong with it. And that might be wrong with it. What you might, what you have to send is here's, here's the draft looking forward to your thoughts. It's It's one of the hardest things to write to an editor because you have to kind of mean it. But then when it came back, like internally on my side, when I went back to the desk where I wrote most of the book, I was broken for two, three weeks. Just like, I, I don't know what to, I don't, I, what, I can't, I just can't, I don't want, you know, it was really, it was terrible. So how did you finally get through it? 
um, about after about three weeks of that, <laughs> uh, of darkly sitting in front of a screen and like messing around with Twitter and then coming back to it and then going off and playing with email and coming back to it, whatever I, uh, I was looking, I don't even remember which chapter it was. That's how bleak it was. I was looking at one of the chapters and at the, the top of it, the lead essentially. And I, and I, I've said to myself something that I had been saying to myself all along, but finally internalized it, which was, well, if I was an editor, <laughs> what would I say about this? And the first thing that came to my head was, well, this lead is all wrong. And then there was like, oh, oh, this lead is all wrong. Of course. Like if I, you know, look at this, this 8,000 word, this is all out of order and it doesn't explain this thing and doesn't do, it just all of a sudden the structure like descended. The fact that it didn't have a structure descended. I could see it. I could see what wasn't there. And I got up, got up, put my stuff away, got up and took this long walk. Cause I do most of my best thinking like that on walking. I went walking around for about 45 minutes. And by the time I came back, I had a structure for the chapter and it, and it's the, I mean, that, that draft is what is basically in the, in the book, but it took internalizing it, it, getting away from my writing and trying to think what my editor brain would say. About so sometimes it, so sometimes it, you, you think it does help to, because, you know, we can get up against this wall where it's like, I don't, there's not, my brain is just not, no matter how much I squeeze it, it not, there's no more toothpaste in that tube. Where am I going to fucking cut it open now and start scraping it out with a toothbrush? I, I don't, so is it better in those moments? Do you feel like it can be better to go, I'm going to release all of this and just let it breathe for a while and then, and then come back to it? Time away from it definitely helped, but well, I when think you're on a deadline too. Sure, and and I think that's super important, right? Like deadlines are that's what they're there for is to make you finish, you know. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I think that I I was I just had to remember to trust the process, like to trust my editor and then trust my own ability to edit. I was having a lot of trouble. I agreed that they were problematic chapters. But I couldn't get myself over the hump of like, you got to re-break this. Like you got to go back in and like take the cast off, break the leg in three places again and, you know, put it and, and reset it. And I just couldn't, I was just like, I can't do it. It's too hard. Um, but when I finally figured out a way to do it, that was the, that was the way in, you know, and, and, and that, that had been true all, all along with it really that the coming up with a structure for the book is what enabled me to write a proposal for it. And, you know, like figuring out how to do it was always the thing that opened the door to being able to do it. That seems dumb when I say that out loud, but it was still, um, it was still true that like, yeah, it was very hard to get edits back that said you have to do a lot more work. Um, but, but the way my brain processed that was, I don't know how <laughs> to do like, there, as you say, I have no more, Ability. Right. This was the extent of my ability. Well, that's why that's why I do think a little bit of separation is important because, you know, people. I, I think you you forget that, you know, your brain is. I, I think anyway the, the, that our brains essentially just absorb data and just re-express it constantly. And so your brain today is different than your brain a week from now because you've had a week's worth of experiences and a week's worth of processing. And so to be able to step away, live your life a little bit. And then, you know, I mean, I, I think your brain really wants to sort things out. 
it just naturally, I feel like, wants to. I mean, it's it is essentially a computing device to a degree. So you would want it wants to put things in boxes and understand how everything works. But sometimes I think it just needs it needs to absorb the right things in the world in order to have the um, the perspective to be able to to do that. But when you're like when you write an when you write an act when you write a a, a bit or when you write a, even a single joke right mm-hmm. and you so you perform it and you get feedback yeah in the form of did they laugh and did yeah. they laugh when i wanted them to right and you can adjust right but do you find that the adjust part uh, how does the the difficulty level of the adjust part compare to the part of like you sitting there racking your brain to come up with it in the first place i find it to be a lot easier because there's um uh, writing for me is a very um you know it, it's a very lonely and isolating experience and stand-up is very much about a relationship that you're forming with another group of people. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I love collaboration and I like working with you as an editor because it's just a sounding board, basically. When when I'm writing alone, I have no idea and I don't know what's the right thing to do. I just sort of, oh, this is what I'm getting. You know, this, this feels right. But at least with an audience, even when stuff doesn't work, you know right away and then you can do something with that information. You can then try to figure out how to make it work and it's not just, you know, well, I, I wrote this thing. Is it good? I don't know. Who's going to tell me? You know, so I think they're, I think they're wildly different because one, your form, one is your relationship to your own brain uh, and the other is a relationship to a group of people and, and they're just, the, the outcome is, is different because of that. I was thinking a lot about audience as I was writing and while I was thinking about the book, um, you know, that I, I, so, so the book is about the science of alcohol, right? Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking a lot about like, well, who are, who are the constituencies, you know, like who, 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 who would I want to read this and what would the response be? I knew I wanted other science writers and scientists and people who are interested in science and people who are interested in booze and cocktails and booze writers. And it's like, well, how, you know, what are they going to, if I, what, what are the kind of things that they're, that they read and that they write and that they're worried about and how can I bring myself, how can I put myself there, especially not having a reputation for writing about the booze side of stuff, having a reputation, I suppose, as a science writer and an editor of science journalism and really thinking like, well, what's that, what's that relationship going to be? And at the same time is being able to write something that is really, really, uh, you know, it's me, like you put yourself into it. The book publishing is, is, as I've learned, I think different than, than magazine writing in some ways, at least the way I've practiced it. Whereas when you're writing for the magazine, you're, you're part of the magazine, mm-hmm. you know? And so the magazine presents a certain way that you're an element of. You're talking about voice basically in yeah. POV and you, and you, even though, even though you have, might have your own specific voice, it's essentially a subset of a larger thing that you always, that helps inform. Yeah. I'm, I, I, I do have a way of expressing things, but I'm, I need to express them in this general sphere because it's a part of this sphere, right. <laughs> ultimately. So it has, to, it has to have a certain voice and a certain way that it comes off and, and, is, and of a, surfic, a, a certain topicality. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I completely understand that. I, and that, that actually makes things a lot easier. Oh, when you have the when you're constrained, yeah, because yeah. it just it just it's a guy it's a guide, you know. But if you just ask someone to sit down and just go write whatever you feel like, and people go, "What the fuck? I don't <laughs> give me give me something." No, just write, you know, you, just write write what you feel you're like. Staring at the screen, I I mean, there were like you stare at a screen with a cursor on it. And you're like, 
well, um... Yeah, I know, and it's hard because you go, <laughs> anything. It could be anything. I could write anything. <laughs> I could learn anything. In this moment, I could write anything. And then your brain's just like, what? Yeah. What, what There's you... plenty in here. What do you need? Yeah. <laughs> you got a lot of cards. But it's almost, like, it's almost like trying to make hay bales without throwing the hay in. Where, you know, it's like you have to, your brain needs something or, to process. Yeah, I, I think. And that's, you know, the, the, that's the nice thing about journalism <laughs> form for me is that you go, you go report. Like one of the things we say is if you don't know what to write, you haven't interviewed enough people. Like <laughs> well, that's, uh, so uh, I don't know, I, I, I'm, people probably aren't familiar with your background, but I think, you know, your career started in probably, you basically just got, you just jumped right into the fire as quickly as possible, right? Did you, yeah. did you start working for Newsweek right out of college? Uh, I went to grad school for a year and a half in science writing and then got a job uh, as a fact checker for the science writer at Newsweek, <laughs> you know, for Sharon Begley, who is still, for my money, one of the top 10 science writers in the country. Uh, but yeah, they were, you know, <laughs> so um, this was like 1990 three or four and I walked in to the offices. I call, I was calling people and you're like, Hey, I'm, I just got out of grad school. I've written some stuff. Is it possible that maybe I could come in and talk to you about things? And like, we actually do have a job opening. Why don't you come in and talk to us? And I thought I was going to, I was living in Boston at the time. I went down to New York, you know, slept on a friend's couch and, uh, um, walked in and I thought it was going to be like a 10 minute thing at Newsweek where they were just going to assess whether or not I was, some sort of monster, or, you know, and then maybe have me back at a future time. But it turned into an all day thing where they just kept sending me to the next person up the line as, as I failed to be a monster every time. Right. Know? And I think I, I'm still convinced that two things really are what did it. One of them was, um, talking to the, uh, the, the woman who at the time was the technology writer. So the first like technology writer for Newsweek and and complimenting her, she had a, a, a MacBook, an early Mac laptop mm-hmm. with a trackball. And she power had, book. Yeah, she had a power book, and she'd replaced the trackball with an aftermarket one that looked like an eyeball. Mm-hmm. So I complimented the eyeball trackball, mm-hmm. and then I said I also was really into this show that she'd never heard of, probably called The X-Files, which turned out to be her favorite show. Oh. And which I had just written my very first freelance piece about, a short review of it for this brand new magazine called Wired. Mm-hmm. Also, the magazine people were very excited about in 94. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then talking to the person who at the time was her editor and saying, I don't know, I think, I feel like maybe there might be a story or two in this internet thing. I feel like the internet, <laughs> I feel like it could be a kind of big deal. I've been working, been covering it and I, I have a little experience with Unix and, you know, I've been messing around with it in grad school some, and I feel like it could be like an important reporting tool maybe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there seems like a lot going on. And I, I now know that like in his head, he was like, Oh, thank God. Right. <laughs> Some Someone, kid, please. Some kid who knows something about the internet who we can, because we know it's an important, we know this is going to be significant and we, we don't know what to do yet. Mm-hmm. They hadn't hired Stephen Levy at Newsweek yet. You know, there were just, there were us kids around. There were the, the, the early twenties, you know, researchers, fact checkers, wannabe reporters. And a few of us were messing around with video games and the internet. And that's what they, they knew they needed that at the time. So it was a good, it was a good moment. And I, you know, I'd always wanted to be a science writer. That's what I wanted to do. So it was, uh, and I think they could tell a little bit that I was just like, no, I'm, this is my, this is my thing. And I didn't see Newsweek at the time closed issues really like Sunday at 2 AM, but sort of late Friday and and Saturday were when all the action really happened at Newsweek. And so I didn't see a, I didn't see a Friday night in New York city in the nineties. Like I was just there (laughs) and I was, I was happy to do it. Like it wasn't, I, I finally learned that a workaholic is not somebody who hates his job but goes anyway. 
It's someone who loves it, right? I loved it. I was, I, I couldn't imagine being anywhere else. Thursday nights and Friday nights, I was there like the lights would go off and I'd have to go turn them on because I was still there writing or still there reporting. Um, and I think they responded well to that. So what were some of the, what, what, what were some of the lessons that you learned from having to churn out a weekly publication where everything you cannot fuck up. I mean, you shouldn't fuck up anywhere, but you really can't fuck up in Newsweek. And, and I did anyway, of course. Um, I used to keep a list before the before, before. really the internet. Like, were you just co- combing news groups for? for like, I, well, I was. That's true. I was doing that, and I was reading a lot of like obscure trade magazines and journals, and I still do that. Um, being able to process a large stack of information on the left of your computer into a small stack on the right side of the computer is a pretty useful skill as a journalist. Um, and I was uh, probably not doing the thing that you're supposed to, that like great journalists do also, which is cultivating a lot of human being sources and calling them all the time and just asking what was going on. I, I've always been sort of not as good at that as I wished I was, but I was a good information processor and I could see, I was looking for patterns you know, that, that people weren't noticing either in science or in technology or in, in miscellaneous geekery, you know, in the nerd stuff. So, and, and that was getting more important too, right? Like those kind of subjects were moving from at Newsweek, the back of the book into stuff that they did covers about, you know, where you would do a cover on a trend story or a cover on a TV show. So like the X-Files turned into a cover story for Newsweek years later that I helped with, you know, and, and, uh, but yeah, I would make mistakes all the time. And as a fact checker, if you made a, if there was a mistake in a story that you missed, it was your responsibility, not the reporter's responsibility or the writer's responsibility. So sometimes there were mistakes that I just checked wrong, you know, or got wrong. And I would keep a list on my wall that I would re- retype every so often that I had a list of the, all the mistakes that I had made in print that I had to correct or something just because it would make me sick to my stomach. And I would remember, like, don't do that. Don't right. fuck up. Like, that's the, that's the first rule. Get it right. As a fact checker, I would imagine that's the that's the bare minimum that you're supposed to do. These all facts have to be right. You're a fact checker. <laughs> but yeah, but you, I mean, but 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 it's uh, super hard, and it is the core of like that's the that's who I am. That's how I see myself, right? As a journalist, and as somebody who like you get it, you do it fast, and you get it right, and you attribute your sources. And you understand what you're saying and like, and these are the keys to, this is your part of keeping this democracy functioning. Like, I, you know, like it really felt that important. Um, and then, so uh, what, can you remember any stories that, that Newsweek, like, I'm just curious, like any, anything in the nineties that they sort of falsely predicted as like, this is going to be a new trend. Oh, and man. then it didn't. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I mentioned that the, 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 the random facts about cigars that I know, I know most of them because we did a cover story on cigars as a trend when I was there that I was one of the lead reporters on. And it was uh, not the case. <laughs> Just safe to say that we've possibly overestimated the impact of the trend of people smoking cigars. Well, I mean, it's, it's sort of, you know, it, it, it's, it's a, it feels like a weird tightrope to walk because ultimately – you know, especially if you're, especially now when you're vying for attention, when people can have their attention splintered in a million, near infinite actually, number of ways, you want to be able to break news. But sometimes when trying to break news, maybe you jump the gun or it's not, or it doesn't, you know, like um, the, uh, what was the, uh, what, what were we, what were we reporting on in the, in the Wired Science Show? And I know it was on the cover of Wired 2 was, um, um, 
the, the, the corn, basically turning corn into fuel or something. Oh, uh, ethanol. Ethanol, yes. Yeah. And, um, and then I feel like that just went away. Yeah, I mean, well, <laughs> also, we, you think about these things as different kinds of news, right? There's the kind of news that, like, oh, shit, something happened, right? Like breaking news, right? you know? And that can be something as, as horrible and significant as, like, September 11th. Right. Or it can be an election. Or it can be, you know, uh, it's, you know, uh, politician wins election or loses election unexpectedly, right? News, you know? Um but you can also have, I think at Wired, we often call them a conceptual scoop, which is when you look out at the, at the landscape of things going on in culture and you say, you know, actually, I think I know what this means, right? And you try to assert, you make an argument for like, right. here's what this says about it, the way we live now, you know, right? Right. And sometimes that, that can be really profound. Sometimes that can just be interesting writing and it doesn't attempt to, to change the course of human history, um, though sometimes it can. Right, I think probably like Atul Gawande's work at the New Yorker on healthcare in this country changed the way healthcare got legislated in this country, and that's something that any journalist really like. You hope you're going to make that kind of have that kind of. You want that kind of a kind. That's sort of the selfish, like oh, you kind of want to make you you want to be able to affect change for for very selfish reasons and for very unselfish Unselfish reasons. reasons The the very the very selfish reasons are because you want to have that attached to your name, right? You want to be the guy who you want to you want to be holding a Pulitzer Prize that says I this I I I pulled that changed things. But the bigger thing is that you feel like oh, I can actually affect. Yeah, you want to change things for the better, right? You want the world to be a better place because of something that you reported or that you wrote. Um, And I don't know. Mm. Boy, it'd be nice if, I, if that had happened with stuff that I'd done. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, not the cigars thing, maybe. But it's all. But it's all changed. I mean, it's it's watching the magazine industry and even even the book industry try to figure out and and keep keep its legs in this ever changing, rocking kind of uh, sure of a a, a, a consumption. Tr- world that we live in trying to understand how audiences consume and trying to understand how to fund that behavior as when, well. when 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 a lot of the numbers tell us that you know everything is down from what it was 10 years ago because yeah. there's so many different um, ways to get things yeah and and uh you know we're very conscious of that certainly it certainly at wired where you know we do things in print once a month we do things on the web once an hour, mm-hmm. you know, we do, we work on things on video at some, some, some recurring interval that changes depending but why, on But com was different from the magazine for a long time. For a time. long time, yeah. Um, it's a weird story and it had uh, far reaching consequences for us as an organization where when Condé Nast, big magazine company, bought Wired, uh, they didn't buy Wired.com because the internet was going to not mean anything. <laughs> what year was this? <sighs> 90... That's all you have to say. <laughs> Something ninety. I think I want to say like ninety seven, but I'm, I'm going to get it wrong. And my my people back at the office are going to be like, "You schmuck." Right. Um, where's your fact checker? Yeah, where's the fact? I thought you were a fact checker. Um, it was before I got there. Okay. Uh, and then um, and then bought it back. Kind of asked like, "Oh, obviously we have to integrate this. <laughs> this is right, duh." Um, and so bought it at at great expense. And um, but by then the cultures had diverged. And so in every news organization, the, the culture of the web is very different than the culture of print or, or video or whatever, right? But for us, they were really very different because we had grown up different, right? And so to, to try to figure out, and I think we're, we're, getting, we're getting there now. It's been a, a, a really a fun and hard process of tying those two cultures back together, back to each other, making us all believe in each other, 
believe in how we were doing, what we were doing, find a, a unified voice, you know, find find a way for all of us to speak in a way that felt like Wired, that if you as a person who just wanted to consume Wired and really didn't give a crap what platform you were consuming it on, right? Like if you look at it online, you don't care if it's a story that only runs online or if it's mm-hmm. a story that comes from the print magazine or comes from a freelancer or comes from an editor or whatever, like all the different places we, we assemble it that we might feel differently about and we shouldn't. It should feel like Wired. Well, the magazine itself does feel special to me in this because, you know, and, and I think, you know, besides the, besides the content, which, you know, bounces between sort of um, frivolous pop culture mm-hmm. stuff to, oh, here's some fun things. I think the first story I ever wrote was like, here's five weird things you can do with lasers. <laughs> and then um, that's the vet, that is the er wired story, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was my first like 2007 story. Yeah, that's I think, right. Was that. it, it, but, but also, you know seeing what Scott Dadich did visually with the magazine to really make it like, I mean, it's, it's like an event publication. Like this is why you should have this because it's, it's, it's compelling content, but it's beautiful to look at and you can't get the same experience. And I think, you know, like looking at it on the web, you cannot get the same experience. Like even just the, the grade of the paper and the, you know, the way that it's presented is, is, is special. We're trying to deliver some kind of, you know, differently special experience in all the different places, right? And trying to understand better, like, well, what makes it special on a mobile screen, on a desktop screen, on a TV screen, you know, in the, on paper, on, in the magazine? Like, how do you best use all that? And we're, we're really, we're still learning. We, we've always been, the magazine has always been very good at delivering that kind of experience distinct from other magazines on paper and print, right? And if you're a magazine guy like I am, I mean, I, I this is the stuff that I, I've been in magazines my whole career. I started working in magazines when I was 13. I've actually worked in a, I work, my junior high school had a print shop in it. So I worked with metal type, you know, like oh, I've actually done that. This is so. one of those outliers things <laughs> where you had the right circumstances for your right skill set at the right time. I did find a lot of places to use the things that I wanted to go learn to use. That's really interesting. I don't, uh, I don't think we had any of those in my, my high school. Well, that was, that, it was, I, I don't know why I don't know why we had it. I mean, it was a. It's certainly not there now, um, but it was. There was a print teacher. There was a print shop, and I worked with you know lines of lead, like all the stuff that's just jargon. Where'd you when grow you up? In Los Angeles. Yeah. Oh, you, oh, you grew up in L.A. Yeah. Where'd you go to high school? Fairfax. Really? I can't believe we've never discussed that before. I don't. I did not know really? that. Yeah. No, I'm. I'm. I come home and it's it's super weird. I just before I came in, I went to Cantor's. For mm-hmm. lunch, yeah, um, which I my car almost drove itself to. Uh-huh. Like I don't even <laughs> really know how I got there from Burbank Airport, and I was I sort of looked up and was like, oh, I'm across the street from my high school, and now I'm going to Cantor's. Apparently, that is what I do. And I was there, and I um, a thing happened to me that only happens to me in Los Angeles, which is I saw myself in the future. I looked up, and I saw this older gentleman who, out of the corner of my eye, looked like my great grandfather, who I grew up with who died a long time ago. So that would have been weird. Yeah. Um, and he was wearing like, he was super dapper old dude. Like yep. he was in a Panama hat and had a really nice, like expensive, nice Aloha shirt on and slacks. And he sort of walked by and I was like, Oh fuck, that's me. <laughs> it's 2040. And that's me in mm-hmm. canners. It's that, that doesn't happen to me in San Francisco. I don't, I do not run into my future self. Are you going to come back to Los Angeles sooner or later? I, 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 how do I not? Apparently that's, apparently I get pulled I get pulled back every time here. I, you know, it's coming back to your hometown. You know what it's like going to your hometown. Like hometowns are like that. So I, yeah, 
but I, you know, it's, it, I probably won't go back to Memphis anytime soon because the, the reason I kept going there was because of my dad. And then my dad died. And it's like, well, there's not, I mean, it, it, is, I, it is nice to go back to your hometown. But, you know, especially with my schedule, uh, it just sort of feels like, man, I'm just going to go back there. And my dad's not going to be there. And then what am I going to do? It is weird because I, um, you know, my parents are divorced. And so they don't live in L.A. anymore. I have friends who are still here. But um, but it's not like I go home. My dad's in Tarzana, which is not the house I grew up in, so I go to my dad's house, mm-hmm. right? But I don't, you know, but it but it still is. Uh, like I said, I sort of come here, and it's it's like time travel forward and back, you know. Especially if like an '80s song comes on K Rock, and I'm driving on Highland. <laughs> you hear, like, do you hear Drama Rama? <laughs> I give you anything, anything. Oh shit, I'm late for class. Yeah, it's all of a sudden, I'm just I like I or I've, I've broken curfew again. Like I'm burning down La Brea at, at 12:30, trying to make it by my father's curfew. You know, I gotta say, if there was a Marty McFly, I think it'd be more like you than than Michael J. Fox in that movie. <laughs> like you would have been a guy that would have hung out with a scientist. I think to trying to you know trying to understand. I would have loved that job. That seems like a good gig. <laughs> I was um, this guy that I that I know named uh, Rick Schwartz just put together um, a a, tab- a coffee table book of Omni magazine covers. Yeah, of you course. You must have sure, loved yeah. Omni uh, magazine. Yeah, I, and and we did a little bit on, uh, 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 in the magazine about the Omni reboot and about the online reboot as well. Yeah, Omni was a huge influence on me. Um, I, I sometimes. I pretend it's a joke. It's not a joke. I I, I run the front of book sections at Wired, so the the, the short articles in the right. front. And I and I will say like, look, that those sections are equal parts Omni and Mad. Like those were the two magazines. <laughs> <laughs> those were them. Those are my formative magazines. Omni. Omni I mean, you know, uh, uh, as a kid, I was I would get so excited about new Omni magazines. Yeah. Just that, again, not only because of the content, and it was it was you know like it's sort of oh it's a it's imagination this forefront of this one this insane new world that's brewing but then also just you know visually stunning and again it was just that kind of event publication you know where you where you really do kind of need the uh you need the science and you kind of need the philosophy and then the aesthetics like you really to me it just sort of balanced out all the things and it just felt good to read like they were really thick and the paper stock was like the quality of our cover stock at this point like it was really it was thick beautiful glossy paper imagine how, met, how expensive like, it would be <laughs> yeah no, that's you'd have to have a a, a specialty the magazine would be like it'd be like a hundred dollars an issue that's, that's right and there would be you know 25 subscribers and uh but but it would be gorgeous to look at and it had you know they were and it was crazy there were whole sections on the paranormal they were like ufos probably um you know <laughs> Just a little bit, not exactly journalism like we might think about it. No, um, no. And like, and then all the art. There were just like science fiction artists, and usually naked people. And it was like this mind blowing experience of reading. You know, it's reading this this things like, oh, th- so things can be like this. You know, yeah. when you read it. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, we're still every so often that is my go to move as an editor. Was that was Omni. Was it a was it a Flint publication or was it like Guccione? It was Guccione. That's yeah. right. Was that his was that his wife or his girlfriend or like someone? I feel like the story that I'd heard was that it was someone that he was linked to that was that said, "I want to mm-hmm. create this thing." I wish I had more facts right now. We can fact check it later. But I want to create this. I want to make this thing. And he was like, "All right, fine." Yeah, and, and then, then brought became, on in, in brought on uh, Ben Bova, who was a great science writer and science fiction writer, 
and then through through those connections reached out sort of did the glossy stuff the beautiful magazine making and then also reached into the science fiction writing community who had never really had anything like that because they had you know most science fiction magazines after the 50s were not much better than zines really right, right? Um, so reached back to this golden age tradition of like what Hugo Gernsback had wanted to do with popular science, stuff like that, you know? And, uh, so you have stories in Omni from people like Isaac Asimov, right? Some of the greats, but then you also have, have short stories like William Gibson's first cyberpunk stories are in issues of Omni, you know? And so you, I, I remember reading, um, probably Neuromancer or something, right? Later, in the, you know, mid eighties and, or, or it might have been Burning Chrome because they're like short stories, Gibson short stories, and going like, going like, wait a minute, I remember this story. <laughs> I read this story in Omni, like you know. And I've actually gotten to talk to him a little bit about that because I was talking to him for I wrote a story about the new Tron movie when it came out. Yeah, I remember was, you were doing set visits and yeah, that's right. And I was very jealous of that. It was fun. It was fun. But and part of what I wanted to do about that was because Tron was one of those 1982 movies and it was one of those that great year for nerd movies. Um, that I had been in theater every weekend for, and that it was about the emerging hacker culture, emerging computer culture, and so I wanted, and and the emerging ideas about what you know then you could say cyberspace with a straight face. Well, what about, I'm kind of curious to see just sort of where because there was there was that period, there was that small window in the early '80s where um, nerd culture almost, I mean, it was definitely something that uh, that was bubbling out in the entertainment industry. Um, you know, certainly like like Max Headroom or or uh, Blade Runner, Blade Runner, and you know like like, yeah, like Tron, and I mean although Tron was a failure, <laughs> but you know well, movies, Tron was Disney trying to do it, right? but, so, like movies movies like Real Genius, where mm-hmm. they, where there was like oh this is a subculture and we're gonna make a com- we're gonna make a comedy about really smart people, but then it didn't really. It, it just it I felt like it just kind of got suppressed, like it started the bubble started to grow, but maybe for wide for a wide adoption rate it just like you know people were aware that there was technology but technology was always a, was a thing in the early days it was like oh it's over there now it's it's just a part of who yeah, we are it was still a weird subculture and so even there was that that science fiction moment that where you had kind of brazil and and blade runner and alien which is even earlier than those right where you started to see science fiction as being a tool for very mature storytelling because technology was becoming a more uh, ubiquitous part of our daily lives, but it ended up being a subculture like any other subculture. I mean, you know, I, I, I've gotten in among the, among the various recurring arguments that we have in the bullpen at Wired um, is the Revenge of the Nerds versus Real Genius, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Where, because I'll sit there and say, look, the movie that actually did it right, the underrated movie, the movie that, that really defined that culture Can was I Real say Genius. What I think okay, oh, I, was, I, I, would, I would agree with you. Right. Revenge of the Nerds was fun, and right. Revenge of the Nerds certainly made you f- made you feel like aha victory but um you know just in term but but real genius real genius for my money is one of the most quotable films sure of of the 80s and really explored i think in a non in a, in a not like there, there was there was there was not really stereotyping in the way it's like this was just this was just a group of ridiculously smart people at this what you know what was supposed to be Caltech, um, right. and uh, with with little with hints of MIT and the pranking. Stuff, right? <laughs> in the, um, but yeah, so you know that that movie seemed to understand something about that culture that Revenge of the Nerds wasn't trying to understand. Revenge of the Nerds was outcasts getting theirs, and that's it's great, right? Yeah. It's really funny, um, but and. And it and it acknowledged early on that like 
super smart people are a weird outcast group sometimes, just like people with different ethnic backgrounds or, you know, it's like a subset of humans that has some, some kind of accidental quality that, that groups them together. Yeah. And then has that, you know, has that I'm Spartacus ending where all of us realize that we all have something that makes us outcasts and that's what binds us together. And that's a, it's a really good lesson and it's a good ending. It is not how real genius ends. Real genius ends with a laser from space. Yes. Right. Like, you know, um, and, 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 uh, essentially almost killing a man with popcorn. Yes, Sure. Uh, not the way you want to go, uh, uh, <laughs> and I, you know, and I, and I, I think, but I, but I think you're right that it didn't, um, it didn't, like, it didn't latch on. It didn't take hold somehow. People just sort of didn't, didn't respond. To I it mean, for people like well. myself, that movie was like a fucking manifesto almost. <laughs> I mean, like I, you know, the, the just the Chris Knight character was my ultimate sort of older brother hero archetype in the 80s. Yeah, well, and you go, oh, please let college be like that. Please <laughs> let college be like that. It wasn't, be so it wasn't, I went to UCLA, it wasn't like that at all. So uh, they filmed part of it at my college. So I got there, and college was a little bit like that, only because you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> I know these buildings. Uh, which college? Oh, Pomona College. Oh, Pomona College? Yeah. Um, so where, where, does, where do you stand now on nerd culture, and do you, do you, feel, like, do you feel like the idea of... of you know, when someone you it's I mean, ironic that I'm asking you it's on the on the nerdist podcast, but you I mean do you feel like the the word is watered down? Does it not mean anything anymore? Is everyone to, you know, I, I get asked these questions a lot and you know, and some people say, Yay, go to answer and other other people are like, Fuck you, you're ruining yeah. nerd culture, you know, like because it's so diluted and it does does it not necessarily mean anything. It anymore. is one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> the other nerds and I have been talking. If and, you uh, could please stop just ruining take it down a notch, please. Could you please no, take it down a notch? I think you're I, I actually this is it, I think your work in this field has been critical. Actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> no one's ever said that sentence to me. Um, no, I really I, I do because I think that what it um if you can make it okay for people to care deeply about something and want to learn more about it and maybe even contribute to its canon, right? Which is something I think that you get, especially in the, in that overlap of fan culture and nerd culture, right? Um, that's, uh, that the, to the extent that you can make that more acceptable, that one can make that more acceptable. That's, that's a mitzvah, you know? Um, it's what the, it, it's the thing that underpins the book, of like, oh, you, are you not you personally, but one might be the kind of person who goes and get, likes to get a drink at a bar. Mm-hmm. Like, let's find out about that. You know, let's, let's look into that and find out how that works, which was where I got interested, right? And, and I think, uh, to, you know, to that extent, if that's nerd culture, that's great. And that should be inclusive and more welcoming. And people can, can live in that in different ways. And, and, and it can be friendly and cool. It's like, Oh, I think I may be quoting you back at you here. It's like, Oh, you like that thing. I like that thing in a different way. Let's talk about that. I just, I think, I think it really, I think it boils down to how people consume things, not necessarily what they, what they consume. And so, you know, people will say, um, uh, Oh, you had this person on that guy. That person's not a nerd. You're not talking about comic books. And like, yeah, but you're just playing into, the sort of big media idea of what nerd culture is that it's all big bang theory and everyone's got to, you know, like have this type of th- this, you know, I mean, it's, it's, that's being an OCD jerk. That's not being a nerd. <laughs> that's different. And there are OCD jerks who are nerdy. But. I feel, I feel like, I feel like it does. I feel like it does the culture a disservice to say that it has to be about, I mean, I think science fiction, I think, uh, uh, uh comics, I think fantastical things. I think, 
um, like science. I mean, these are things that nerds g- tend to gravitate toward. I mean, certainly in the in the fantastical side, I think it's just because you know there's it's imaginative and it's an escape from reality. And you know, the way a lot of us grew up, reality was sort of a not not necessarily kind to us for the choices that we made in terms of like the types of things we were into. But I would also, I mean, uh, you know, it's it's hard to tread that line of talking about the. Of, of, of science fiction in popular culture, right? Which is super influential now, right? The the because you can say, "Oh, I like Star Wars." Like, well, fucking everyone likes Star yeah, Wars, you know. The movies, yeah. T- oh, hard hard call. Yeah, yeah, you exactly. Know, you, you enjoyed the. Avengers. You like the Beatles? Do you enjoy the Beatles? Yeah, Beatles. Oh, so you so you know music? So, so you know, right. yeah, so yeah, you so like so you're a rock and roll yeah, fan yeah, exactly. then? <laughs> um, you know, like well, I think maybe you just enjoy pleasant sounds. Uh, <laughs> like that might be, you know, if the, when the Avengers makes. A billion dollars or whatever that's a science fiction movie based on a comic book you know and here but that's mainstream culture you know the 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 stuff about whether you um know how to program a computer or build a robot or uh understand biochemistry you know is a different sort of a different part of that world um and the part where you're writing your own fan fiction as a way to engage with you know firefly right, right. um is another part part of that world. And I think maybe the only thing that it, it, you, you, you have to ask whether like, Oh, so if I expand the tent so much that it encompasses everything, does that damage the tent in some way? Right. And I, you know, it shouldn't like you want other people to have the same, to, to engage with things as intense, as intensely as, as a nerd or a geek might, because then we have common ground. Then we have something to talk about over lunch. But some you people know? don't want to talk to people over lunch because the, the ultimately, you know, if you're a part of a thing, Maybe there are other people, and I'm sure I'm this person for some people, where you go, oh, well, I don't want to be a part of the same thing that guy is, because if I'm a part of the same thing that guy is, that means that we must be alike in some way, and I don't want, I don't want that entity to, to, to dilute this thing that is, should just be mine and my friends, you know? Yeah, I mean, I do, I remember having a kind of chilling realization, um, late college, maybe you're right after it, realizing, like, oh my God, other people also like these things as intensely as I do. <laughs> and you like, have to be okay with that. Yeah, it's like, no, in fact, that's that's good, right? Like, you know, there is that thing in, in nerddom. It's that Groucho Marx line. I wouldn't, well, I wouldn't join sure. any club that would have me as a member. Like, sure. well, if it's, if other people like it, it's only, it has to be something only I know about. I just, I feel like uh, it's important to understand what your motivations are. And I feel like it's also because, you know, if, if your goal is to essentially just build yourself into a bubble and it's like, you know, fuck the outside world. This is my thing. And, and there's not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I mean, that's just, just a choice. <laughs> I personally, part of what I like to do is I really like to understand people and I like to understand why they do things. And I think, you know, when I went through my um, big, I'm not going to drink anymore, let's refocus my life and try to um, make it productive. I mean, I read all these self-help books and this one thing keeps coming back to me. And I, and I, and it's something that I feel like if people would, would try to employ this more often, there would be so much less bullshit in the world at least surface bullshit but i think it was the stephen covey book the seven habits yeah you know and uh and it might actually be the first habit which is seek first to understand and most people just want to tell you why they're right more than they actually want to understand the true nature of something or at least how you can interact with someone else or what their take on it is or how to gain more of an understanding because ultimately when you when you take on new understanding and new knowledge that does get you outside of your comfort zone because you're in this place where you're like I know everything I need to know oh someone else is going to challenge me and maybe make me even if it's 
even if it's a, a an improved understanding of something that still floats you outside your comfort bubble a little bit. Right. You have to learn a very special kind of um, EQ jujitsu of being able to like take that on board and use it. Because you, you, you must, you know, uh, 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 because you write and other people can, anyone can just come along and see your writing. People must write things at you all the time that are like, fuck, you don't know shit. You, what is this shit? What is this bullshit? As opposed to, as opposed to, um, Hey, so I don't understand why you wrote this this way. I don't think I agree with it, but why don't you tell me what your thinking was so we can try to figure out if we understand each other. So that's what all our letters actually- are like, yeah, that's for sure. Everybody wants to understand. <laughs> no, I mean, and one of the reasons that you become one of the reasons that I became a reporter was that it was an opportunity to just learn about new stuff all the time. Every week right? Back when it was a weekly, every month, you know, every day, like, oh, there's a new thing. I'm going to learn everything I can about that. And then I'm going to deliver that back in hopefully an engaging, entertaining and, and correct way. And then if somebody's going to challenge it, if they know more, first, I'm going to get sick to my stomach because it means I made a mistake in print. But doesn't that kind of excite you in a weird sort of way? But then you're going to have to respond to it. And either you're going to, either you have to take that on board, right? And like change what you thought you knew, or argue it, make the case, you know, and, 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 and stand there. So like, no, I understand what you're saying, sir, but you know, here's why I said this other thing. And here's maybe what you haven't read. And by the way, here's the citation for that. And, 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 right. It becomes a, that dialogue should be an exciting dialogue. That should be, that should be a fun, a fun dialogue where you learn something new. You never learn all of it. You certainly never learn everything you need to know about something by deadline. Right. You know, you're not getting a PhD in it. You're writing an article about it. <laughs> um, and and, uh, and I, I was, uh, well, I don't know. I, I guess I'm talking a big game about that. But one of my recurring anxiety dreams is that I'm going to have some reading for the book and somebody's going to stand up in the back and say, but don't you think that but what you seem to have gotten wrong about fermentation? I'm just be like, oh, man. I well, yeah, because especially when you're, when you're delving into, um, and, and I realize this very quickly with, with Wired, uh, when I started working on the TV show, when you start sort of talking in 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 nerd things, that's I feel like there are other there are other groups that'll just go, "Hey, fuck you, you stupid idiot!" But this group in particular will write you a dissertation about why you were wrong with footnotes and yes. and 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 re- which which you know again ultimately is good if it means that you're getting to the bottom of whatever the nature of something is, but it's, but it's definitely you're. I feel like you're putting yourself out, out there a lot, you know, for people just cause the people, you know, the our part of our culture now is we're, we're whole pokers. We just fucking love to go. Here's why that's wrong. Here's why that's wrong. Here's why that's wrong. Here's why that's wrong. Well, and there's, and you have access to the people who are building the edifice in the first place to poke at them at the hole. <laughs> right. But so I, I, I would maybe think about it this way. Um, the character of comic book guy on the Simpsons. Mm-hmm. Why is that funny? Cause it's true. Right, because everybody who knows comic books has been in a store and met that guy, or heard them arguing in the back about like who would win in a fight, Batman or Boba Fett. Right, it's Batman, and uh, it's Batman. Come well, on, come on. Okay, no, come on. I guess, I guess it let me Batman. finish, and then we can talk okay, about. Okay, no, I, 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 I would go with Batman on that. <laughs> but right, good comic book stores are not like that. Right, good comic book stores, comic book stores that want to succeed as a business. Right. Like I went, I was just in New York and I went to my old comic book store, my favorite comic book store, St. Mark's comics on, on St. Mark's, right. And talked to my friend Mitch who owns the place and owned it when I was there. And I used to be there every Wednesday night, you know, um, a good comic book store, if it wants to succeed as a business has to be welcoming. It has to be a place that people who've never read a comic feel comfortable walking in and can say, I, my 
kid saw this cartoon. It's got a red guy and a blue guy, and I think, and you'd be able to say, like, <laughs> sure, it's right over there. You, you, know? Want, you don't want him to be like Jack Black in, uh, in High Fidelity. Yeah, exactly. A good, Do you even know what your daughter likes? <laughs> a good record store can't be like that. A good, a good cooking supply store can't be like that. A, a, you know, we, you, can't, you can't function in a, in a larger society. And have those kind of, of attitudes. Why do you think then that within our subculture that a group that you would think would be empathetic to um, elitism and being, you know, and excluding, when, or at least for me, feeling like an outsider for a large part of my life, particularly because of the things that I was into. Um, and then when I grew up, I just sort of felt like, I think that's why I'm so like ultra rah 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 inclusive for everyone because like I don't want people to feel what I felt when I was growing up as opposed to I'm gonna fuck you people treating me like this and I'm gonna build a smaller garden and you can't come in my garden how do you like it? Yeah, we 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 do make that mistake especially when we're uh, when we're younger. I mean, you know, one of the things that I always that I started to think was a telltale sign for me at least of that particular nerdiness was like, Oh, I'm just not, I'm not reading. I'm not instinctively reading other people's emotional states as well as someone else might just as a, as a practice, as an ability, you know, it's something that you have to come at. If you're that sort of nerd, you have to come at kind of obliquely be like, well, I can sort this out. Like I can start to learn by looking at people and talking to them, what they're actually feeling and what their responses are to what my behaviors are, you know, in a, in a more, um, uh, Sherlock Holmesian way than somebody who can just do it, who can automatically know like, oh, this person's happy, but that person's sad. Like you, you know. But I think we don't, we're not that good at that right away. And so it might even be unintentional to say like, well, listen, if you don't like the things I like, obviously that means that you're stupid, right? Um, and when you manifest that attitude, or even if, in fact, you say that out loud, as sometimes we might make that mistake, you don't notice that it's hitting somebody. It's snapping somebody's head back in the same way that it snaps your head back when they make fun of you for not being able to play football. But I think part of I think part of the dark side of nerd culture that has bled over into more. I think this is I think one of the one of the downsides is that I feel like in the in the old days, yeah, we uh, have we have those now. I know we do have those now. But in the but in the but but before, I feel like if someone got in your face about a topic, whether it be cigars or whether it be Boba Fett versus Batman or whatever, and and they would get in your face and go, no, fuck you, here you're wrong, and here's why, and then they would actually have a wealth of knowledge to shoot, you know, to basically just lock and load in the chamber and just start firing at you, as opposed to now, I feel like a lot of people have that impulse to fire things at you, but without actually doing all the research and having all of the knowledge. I mean, I, I feel like people come at each other now without actually um, thinking that they have all the facts, but without actually having done, you know, because it's such a headline culture that we're in because there's so much data to process that our brains can't process. So it's just, oh, I read uh, three sentences of this thing. So I totally know that thing now, you yeah, know, I mean, you know, maybe I, I, I feel like that's why I'm uh, I do much better now with people who, uh, who when I'm talking to somebody about their their thing, you know that thing that they actually have that depth of knowledge about, because then they're engaged and excited about it, and it's it's it is more fun to talk about that, and then then I have something that I can ask questions about, you know, then then 
maybe I have maybe I have that in common with somebody, and and you can share sort of a take on something. Um, it's uh, it may be why we talk a lot about pop culture together because pop culture is still a shared. You know, everybody can watch Mad Men and 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 think hard about it. Um, so you can actually have a subject uh, that you can delve into and delve into from different angles and, and discuss, you know, in a way that, that is not as superficial as just, Oh, I saw those things that got shared by my friends on Facebook and therefore I know about things. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think that, that that's not a, that's not a thing that only, only nerds do. Are know, we running? Think, do you think we're running out of new pop culture things? <laughs> <laughs> right. There's the, I guess, I guess Patton's argued that and, and, uh, in a little bit. And uh, do you write that? He, I think he wrote that for wired. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. He wrote that for wired. An amazing piece yeah. that we're running out of that. Uh, we got to start over. Um, cause, I, cause we're basically just re-expressing all of the old. Yeah. I don't pop think culture stuff. I don't think that at all, but I, I, um, no, I think that there are a lot of great, creators out there who are doing more than just strip mining the movies of 1982 or the great comics of the, of, <laughs> I, of the to, I just found out my neighbor in my new house is um was a, a big tv writer and he wrote on dark shadows no and i really want to talk to him that's pretty cool i mean i think he's like 85 years old but uh i really want to just sort of pick his brain about how did you make a soap opera in the seventies with a fucking vampire? Right. What was that moment where you're like, also a vampire, a vampire. Yeah. What, really? Is so, that okay? <laughs> well, there was, there was a Dra- you know, there was a Dracula trend in the seventies. There was, there was That's a, right. there was a vampire trend to the extent where the Langella movie. Yes. Right? Yes. And then, uh, to the extent that it was, they, they made, you, you know, if, if, if a comedy is made about something, then it was probably like... When are are love, you going Love at First love Bite? Love at First Bite, yeah, yeah, headed? Yeah, yeah. 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 Sure. What, what if a vampire dropped into the New York in the 70s in the disco era? He loves the nightlife, Christy. He likes I don't know if book. you get it. Because he can't enjoy <laughs> the day I'm trying to explain. No. See, let me see if I can explain this to you. Because okay. vampires can't go out. They can't go in the day. Because of the sun. Yeah. But at night... Yeah. That's the thing. You know who else is like that? Disco people. They hate the sun too. It's an overlap. Yeah, exactly. They symptomatic overlap. It burns their coke fueled eyeballs. (laughs) That's why. Saw that in the theater. Yeah, so did I. (laughs) Thanks, mom and dad. Fucking Artie Johnson as Ren. Susan St. James. Oh, a pre-Kate and Alice. Either Kate or Ali. Yeah, that was. uh, And Richard Benjamin. Richard Benjamin playing a Von Helsing, who was. Fucking great, great. Yeah. No, it's a very funny, it's still a funny movie. It's even funnier now because it's such a great period movie too. Because you're like, oh, funny vampires and New York in the 70s. Or I guess LA. No, it was New York. It was New York, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, so you get 70s New York, period 70s New York, which is, you know, a different planet now also. Oh, man. (laughs) Love it. First bite. Good movie. (laughs) Quality. That and Zorro the Gay Blade. Zorro the Gay Blade. He, George, George Hamilton's, Hamilton's classic. Tried to take on all of the. That's right. Well, we did uh, Love at First Bite. Let's do Zorro <laughs> the Gay Blade. Zorro has a gay brother, cousin. Uh, it must have been a. It must have been a cousin, Bunny, something, right? Was it, you're like, wow, that's. There's a lot of jokes that would not get told in that. He movie. gave up the sword for a whip, and yep. he, he and all the different colors. All the different colors. What color is he wearing today? It's Sherbert or whatever. whatever <laughs> well, the it was. joke, and I remember my parents trying to decide whether to explain this joke to me, actually, because it was because the joke was they go, he's no, he wasn't wearing, he's not wearing black. He was wearing like banana color. So he was wearing more of a cranberry. He was wearing a <laughs> wearing like apple color, wearing grape. Because and I was and everybody in the theater laughing. I remember, and I, I remember kind of talking to my parents like, why is that? 
because c- fruit, you see. Oh, is the is the the stereotypic? Oh, seventies. Exactly. Yes, I see what you. Seventies. All right, that's not a nice thing to say. Nineteen seventies. I'm not going to watch Zorro the Gay Blade. (laughs) I will watch Love at First Bite. Although that's probably full of like stereotypes. If you watch now, you'd be like, I Ooh. feel a little uncomfortable. Ooh, not, it's really. not okay. You can't say that. <laughs> can't. I'm, scr- I'm scratching the back of my head. I'm so anxious just thinking about like what those. They, they're just like, just shut the door on the seventies. So, so not an un, not a not a full recommendation necessarily. A a with some qualifications. No, no, no. But it 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 definitely uh, there definitely was also. You know that was another period of time where sci-fi was like just trying to just trying to bubble up. Yeah, but so interesting because of what science fiction looks looked like. I always think of like I was thinking of the movie Logan's Run yeah. as the the last pre-Star Wars science fiction movie, and this isn't exactly right. The timing's not exactly right, and it's not exactly true or whatever. But you you know you, you get a movie like Logan's Run where the special effects are kind of great for what they are, but not as great as they're going to be, or even maybe a movie like. Um, I guess like Dark Star, like Silent Running. Those the pre the pre Star Wars were the guys who were learning special effects were eventually going to go do it for Star Wars, right. right? But they were. It still wasn't. It wasn't serious, and it wasn't a money maker. They were goofy, right? There was no sense of self seriousness about it. And in fact, like if you're going to make a vampire movie, it would be a parody, like Love at First Bite. Or if you're going to make a western, it would be a parody, like Blazing Saddles, a brilliant parody, right? Because the because the the actual the serious way to make these things had been either never worked because science fiction was always for kids and stupid, or it had been tapped out, like the Western or the musical. You had to do some kind of postmodern take, because, because those genres were over. They had just done it. They had solved it. They solved it, and then they, <laughs> then they solved the solution, and there was just nothing left to say. So then you had to make fun of it as the last-ditch effort to yeah. squeeze. Um, and then you end up with this, this, this outgrowth in the 70s in film and television of like the, of the, the indie guys getting some money and making really amazing 1970s film, you know, the sort of Serpico years, right? Where like these movies are serious and they have messages and Sidney Lumet is making stuff that means something. And then like Star Wars comes out and says like, oh, actually, no, we know how to do that again. We've got it. We've got it sorted and we can actually make really big, amazing, epic things that take, that take it very seriously. You know, that, that, that are, that are movies, not, about what the 1930s serials were, but they're about how we remember them, you know, which, um, that's where the, that's where the nerds start to get power because they're, they're not making things like what they actually had. They're making things like what they remembered having. So they're even better because their technology is that much better yeah. and that everyone's learned that much more. And, and maybe in some ways worse too, because then they, um, I think this is happening in comic books a lot now where the sort of comic books that you have now are written, and have been for a decade or more, written by people who grew up with comics, right? And, um, in the same way that people who write for The Simpsons are people who grew up watching The watching Simpsons. Watching The Simpsons. Right? Oh, it's so weird. Um, and, you can, and you can kind of tell, right, if, you, if, you're, if you're watching the show. So with comics, there are people who are like writing Batman as the awesome version of the, the awesome memories they have of Batman. It's very different than what Batman might have actually been, which puts it in a position of sometimes coming up with some really great comics and sometimes not. Also meaning that like my two little kids can't really read Batman because it's too violent, um, which is weird for comics, you know. Uh, just now that now that the we've been in this stew for decades, right? Started cooking in the eighties, you know, twenty fourteen, and like <laughs> it's still pop culture still kind of looks like this. Um, it does make it you, you sort of that. That's why more and more people can be nerds because we've all we grew up in it now. Everybody grew up in it. 
I do. I, this is, I, I do like that idea of something essentially feeding itself for the next generation. That it almost it's like sort of a weird when it when 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 you're when the thing is nourished on itself. Yeah. Well, that's what that strip mining. That's the we need new stuff in pop culture. I think. I think that's what's behind some of the we need new stuff in pop, in pop culture argument. Right. Um, is that you know people are kind of making versions of stuff. Right. Um, but I. But I, I'm not. I, I mean that that changes. I don't think that's. I think it's true in some cases, not true. Like it's not a blanket. Well, I think that's right? partially where the um, you know part part of it is that um, audiences are splintering, and these giant infrastructures of whatever the industry is—books, movies, television—is still trying to hold on to this idea of like. I mean, not not in all cases, but in the in the bigger ones, still trying to hold us under the idea of like you got to appeal to everybody. Right. And so when you have to appeal to everybody, you're, you're, you're very risk-averse because you don't want to try new things because you can't take the chance that if someone doesn't recognize something in the midst of all the white noise that they are going to you know, exchange their money for it and then everyone's going to get fired. Yeah, so in movies, just I'm not sure why the movie example is on my mind the most at the moment, but you, you can imagine this world where like they're spending $250 million to make a thing. And mm-hmm. like, well, if it fails, like... Someone has to commit suicide. Like someone has to go stick a sword in their guts in front of the board of directors of some transnational media corporation. But you think about like the things that Christopher Nolan does for genre, right? And like Interstellar's coming up and that I have high hopes for, but like the Batman movies were kind of amazing comic book movies, right? And and that, that second one is like a serious crime movie and cool and a, nobody ever tried it that way before. Inception, like it's amazing, really highfalutin, very expensive science fiction movie, right? new kind of pop culture, right? But also a movie like Attack the Block, right? Cheap, you know? An alien invasion movie, a straight-ahead 1950s B-movie alien invasion movie, but innovative, new, nobody ever said it in that kind of place with those kind of people, like, done on the cheap. I think all practical effects, if there were CG, it was the kind that you can do on your laptop. I don't even know, you know? Something new in popular culture gets absorbed much more quickly than it used to, right? Attack the Block comes out in 1982. It's the kind of movie that you and I talk about. <laughs> and then 30 years later, it's like, remember Attack the Block? Oh, yeah. it was so good. Remember? Right, where Attack the Block comes out when it did, and like, well, that star is going to be in a Star Wars movie. Like, that kid, Star Wars, you're up. Yeah. You know, that director, you're making fantastic whatever. The, I can't remember which one. That's why I get excited. Like, well, I felt that way when I saw District 9. I was like, yep. holy shit. Something new. Chronicle. Something new. Chronicle. Right, like so, there, there, there are those, and that's just movies, you know. You, 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 on on in nerd television, which I pay close attention to, and I, I say this as a person who watches highfalutin TV and the lowest of the of the lowbrow genre there low TV. Falutin? There's, there's, lo- if if there is, it is me watching uh, Legend of the Seeker every week. That is me <laughs> faluting lowly. Uh, is what that a, a show which I saw for every bit for what it was and still loved watching. Um, so, you know, you, you, you watch a, a show now like Arrow, right? Which to me is actually a great comic book show and, a gr- and has turned into a great TV show on its own, like as an action adventure show that still manages to ring all of my nerd bells, you know, and, and still manages like, oh, this is a fun superhero show about a guy shooting arrows at bad guys. And, and uh, you know, does rather than having, instead of having, instead of feeling like it's strip mining, 50 years of green arrow comic book continuity, which who would, how would, who would know, right? Like, what, which you know, one? yeah, right. Um, you know, instead of feeling like that, it feels like, Oh, we're going to take this character and remember some of the things that happened in the books and do a, a, a new take on it. That seems really fun to me. 
Um, and that, you know, in a, in a way that's, that's appealing to both men and women, too, right? Proves you can do it, you know? Uh, so I have a lot of respect for that kind of nerd culture. Well, talk you're not to me buying again. the arrow thing. No, I was going to say, talk to me again when they decide to remake Tales of the Golden Monkey. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to bring that up. Not bring him back alive. You want Tales of the Gold Monkey? Not <laughs> bring him back. Golden al- Monkey. Okay, all right. If that's, that, that's we need an Indiana Jones TV show, but not like Indi- something like. Okay, so he needs a hat. Yep. If he could be in the thirties, we're in adventure. That was a good time because there were seaplanes. Sure. Now we don't have the money for a period show, so you're going to have to use the collapsing bridge at Universal Studios for your set all the time. <laughs> but I think it'll be okay because the stories will be strong and the characters will really sell it. <laughs> so I don't understand. So there's a golden monkey who's telling all these stories. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> how does he, how does a gold monkey? That's how they top? should have ended that. Like when when they got canceled, it should have been like. And then he flew his plane into a volcano. The end. And then it just cut back, and it's an actual golden monkey just reading a story to a bunch of people that he then eats. See, it's, it's written. It's written on his tail. <laughs> mm-hmm. See the, the tails. See there. Now you're talking. Now you're doing Ducktales, which duck is a tales. totally different. It's, life is like a hurricane. Now that's good. <laughs> but you just went from a very poignant tale about science fiction to life is like a hurricane. But it that's is. the point I'm trying to it make. It really is like a hurricane. That was what I was trying to say all along. Is yeah. Like um, so the the book that you've written is The Science of Booze. I remember when you, um, it's called Proof. I remember talking to you when you were writing up the pitch for this book and then you sold it and, and it was... Uh, I feel like I should apologize a little bit too for you've been very gracious having me come and chat about it, but I I I know that this is about the opposite of where you are in your life. Oh well, just so, okay. Look, yeah. Let me let so me. I just, feel bad. Kind here, of. Here's here's me with the way I am with drinking. I don't think there's anything wrong with booze. The problem is me. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't look at booze as being like booze is intrinsically valueless. Like it has no. The the quality of it is whatever people assign to it, and for me, that was a that was a negative thing. The way that I interacted with this uh, with this substance, but that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong. I, I have no problem with it whatsoever. I, I appreciate. It. I just felt like I should at least say, and also you, you like put, I'm aware you, you put know. the science of before it. I did, which makes it all Newsweek trick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how are we going to write about booze? Uh, the science of science of we can do a science of how yeah. science of second day story week art of I don't know yeah. philosophy of better science of yes uh, people love that people can really get their minds around the science. Can we of talk about how you should talk to your kids about it? Can we do that? Can you you put that on the cover. Kids? How to yeah. talk to your kids? How do you talk to your kids? The science of don't take drugs. <laughs> um, but uh, what is your what was how first of all. What is your process for for fleshing out a story when you're writing for the magazine, and how did that differ from what you had to do for the book? Yeah, they're super different. It turns out. <laughs> uh, you think it's the same. It's a, you you learn that lesson when you when you first start writing for the front of the book. You're like, oh, it's really simple. Front of the book, you know, is four hundred, five hundred words. You have your establish. You have your title. You have your establishing sentence. You know, a couple examples. You back those up with some jokes, and then like one line at the end. You're out. And then you're out. And then when you write, you write you know, like a three thousand word article, <laughs> and it's like. Oh, wait a minute. oh, I have to expand those into paragraphs and columns and chunks mm, what and if they don't tell go, a story. How do they go after the other ones? I don't know. Um, yeah, gonna... and, and I did find that, like, so a book, uh, you know, a book is about 80,000 words, it turns out, 80 to 100,000 words. This one comes in, like, 82 or something, and uh, it turns out that's very different than 
the kind of 4,000 word universe of a magazine feature? A book is roughly 250 double spaced words. Uh, double, it's 250 words uh, double, with double spaced lines. For pages. For pages, for page. yeah. For uh, page, right? that's, pro- that's probably right. That's, yeah. that's what I thought. I remember my book was like 250, around 250. Yeah, I mean, my, so my structuring, well, so usually with, with feature stories from the magazine, the, what I'll try to have, it doesn't always work, but I'll try to have either, you know, when somebody pitches me a story and we'll, we'll construct a pitch to take to the, to the other editors and to the editor in chief, say yes or no, and, or when I'm trying to pitch my own, I want to write about this, is to have a narrative. Classic what, narrative arc. Like, what is it? What else does it have to have, though, for you to like? What sticky elements does it have to have for you to go? Yes, this is something worth exploring. Uh, you know, character to follow. Character. A lot of this stuff is straight stolen straight from screenwriting. All right, a character trying to accomplish something difficult against increasingly difficult odds, finally making a decision. You know, finally making that critical decision that either succeeds or fails. Right. Mm-hmm. So you build a build a narrative spine. Um, rather than do you know what's a, a perfectly valid way to do magazine articles that we rarely do at Wired would be to say like there's a lot going on in the world of TK or in the world of Thing right right and here's Thing example of example thing one to, two to, three, means to be determined right yeah so journalism jargon but um, we tend to like to have one narrative spine at Wired like follow one story and then hang on that spine other examples other cases um, or context like most importantly like why is that a wired story. Why is that interesting? What is changing about the world as exemplified by this story that I'm telling you in an engaging way? Right. And so in a perfect world, that's what happens. So I wrote this, I wrote a feature um, now four years ago, three, four years ago for the magazine about a, a researcher trying to solve the mystery of a fungus that grew on, that seemed to grow on whiskey fumes, on the fumes that coming out of a warehouse where whiskey was aging. Mm-hmm. And this stuff was growing everywhere and, and nobody knew what it was or why it was growing where it was growing. And he tried to figure it out. Were those things called bankers? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> you, you can have it. Sure. You know, I don't really have anything against bankers. I was just... You could have gone lawyers. You could have gone a lot I of ways. I could have gone, yeah. I could have gone a lot of really stereotypical ways. The zeitgeist yeah. asks for bankers. Yeah, yeah, I thought so. Um, and and so, I, you know, so I had this mystery story and I consciously told it as a mystery, like where does whiskey come from and where do, why, why is aging whiskey making a fungus grow and what is this stuff? And I had this great, the, the James Scott, who's the researcher who was working on it, turned out to be a really interesting guy and I wrote him to be a detective. I called him a consulting mycologist in the story because Sherlock Holmes was a consulting detective, right? And so I wanted that parallel to be there. So I had this narrative and then hung on that narrative um, conversations about, well, what, what, what's our relationship with nature and technology? Why do, how does something that evolved millions of, hundreds of millions of years ago find a, a niche to thrive in that, hasn't, that only existed for the last couple hundred years? Aging spirits. Right? We've only done that since, consciously, we've only done that since about the 1800s, and maybe we've done it for a couple thousand years, let's say. But you know, how is it possible that something that's that old found, something, found a place to live in something that new? Which let me talk about cities and... and, and ecology and a whole bunch of other fun stuff that I'm interested in science. Okay. So I wrote that. And then in talking about all the, that story and a bunch of other reporting that I was doing that went along with it in the, in the world of booze and science, some very good science writers kind of looked at me across the dinner table one night and said, you know, you have a book here. And I said, I do really? What, where, which thing, what thing <laughs> that I just said is a book, you know, I don't know. And, uh, and, and Bill Wasik, who is about to be the deputy editor of the Times Sunday magazine was a senior editor at Wired. Um, looked across the table at me and said, well, all of it. So, okay. Now I've got like, all right, so there's a book. Okay. Book. Got it. Book. Did you solve anything in the fungus story? Uh, he, I, I, he came very, very close until the, um, 
the big drinks companies that he was working for decided that it was a lot easier to just pay for people to power wash their surfaces than try to explain like yes it's our oh. fault but he was still but he became obsessed and he still he still kind of works on it in his free time he's a really interesting guy um does a lot of cool work in fungus which turns out to be an interesting field who knew um spangler yeah exactly spores molds and fungus um <laughs> But then I didn't know how to make that into a book because I didn't think that one story was, you could go 80,000 words of like mysterious whiskey fungus, right? Um, and so I kind of chewed on that for months. And then I was looking at a, uh, and I knew too structurally roughly, you know, you want a book to be about 80,000 words and, and a good chapter length is about 8,000 words. So I was like, okay, well, I need 10 chapters roughly and then an introduction and conclusion can be shorter but that's first thing and the last thing so really i need eight chapters i need eight chapters worth of thing to talk about please tell uh, me that in all of this that the way that you ended the book was just but in the end whiskey makes you a fun guy <laughs> <laughs> i did tuck one of those i tucked one of those jokes into the feature please end with it's full pun. of stupid puns the whole thing is so so you started off on this journey so, with this thing that you didn't even realize was a book and then you had to figure out well, how to then, parse that into 10 it, chapters and then and then was like well okay i can i i could do the process you know, I was looking at, an, at a graphic, an infographic of how a distillery works, and I realized there were these dis- discrete steps. Started with fermentation, and then went distillation, aging, and then tasting the stuff. And I said, oh, I could put yeast and sugar at the front of that. And I, really, I, I literally counted on my fingers. I'm like, oh, I have eight. I can go from yeast to hangovers. I have eight. That's eight. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then I realized that once, once I started kind of trying to figure out what the reporting plan would be that I had a lot of stuff in my file cabinet that I've been collecting string on this since I'd been at Newsweek of how smell and taste worked and science of, you know, what kind of barley you're going to grow for making beer and just like weird little bits that I had found and Xeroxed and put into a manila folder or, you know, copy the PDF and put in Evernote or something as time went on, um, that I had a lot of it, that I'd cared about this for, for a decade and a half of career without, knowing what I was going to do with it. Um, so it, it was the, it was the thing that like, and I think this happened with your book too, where you go, I wish there was a book that did X and there isn't right. And then you go, Oh, well, I guess I could write that. That's a fun discovery. When you realize you go, surely there must be, Oh, I, maybe there's not, maybe there is, but it's, not readily available to anyone. Yeah. If that's well, and then the I had you do the same thing that I'm sure you did too, which is then when you find out, you do more research and you find out like, oh, I guess there is a book that kind of, but that's totally different. Well, I'll tell you, <laughs> I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why because I think because I think a lot of people talk themselves out of things where they go, well, there's probably already a thing like that, but you always forget that you are ultimately the most valuable asset. You're the most valuable factor in that equation because you bring the specific point of view. That even if someone else wrote a book about this thing, they're not you. And you have your own set of experiences, much in the same way of like, you know, when do you put yeast into the process and where did the water come from that's putting in the, like, which gives you the variance for the specific type of flavor that something can create because of all of the, you know, you're not one dimensional. Parallel, I see where you're right. Yeah, see? Very nicely done. See? Elegant writing trick there. Oh. I mean, yeah, you know what I tried to. I, I, I sort of tried to make the case. I said, like, look, you know, I'm a science writer. I know how to do this. I, I can take hard science, take a deep dive into hard science and make it entertaining. 
while I'm saying that out loud, I'm thinking to myself like, oh, <laughs> fuck, I hope I can take what I really need to be able to do here <laughs> is, and, you know, so to the extent that that's successful, I don't know, but that that's the, that's the, uh, the promise at least so you 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 can you thought of okay i I see what the chapters are Mm -hmm. and then you know without giving too much away so that people know to actually read the book what was it because i i feel like you always no matter where you start no matter where you think you're going the process always kind of alters your perspective which is sort of in a way that's kind of what you want it has to it has to or you're doing it wrong that's right. a good point. If you're if you're a reporter, like be a reporter, go out and find out stuff, right? <laughs> and then when it turns out that something you find out totally overturns what your hypothesis was, this is what I hope why being a reporter is a lot like being a scientist. When your hypothesis is overturned, stop defending the hypothesis. You falsified it. Have a new hypothesis. Well, that's the difference between are you tr- and going back to what we were talking earlier, are you trying to at all costs force your opinion on the world? Or is your ultimate goal to understand or to find whatever you think in as much as the truth can be, whatever the truth is in that moment? And that is kind of exciting to find out. I think it's kind of exciting to find out, oh, fuck, this whole thing that I thought was wrong because here's the thing. Here's the real thing. I, I used to say that um, an, editor, an editor-in-chief of Wired had to be a lot like the head of a very well-funded and important laboratory at a university. Because what the editor-in-chief, and it's, I think it's true of any magazine too, but the editor-in-chief of Wired especially, because it's a technology and science and, and, and business culture magazine, has to have a very, very strong point of view. There's a hypothesis that we, will, that we assigning editors will continue, like as the postdocs in a way, will continue to try to do papers that, that prove, <laughs> right? We'll keep trying to do that, you know, and we'll keep trying to come up with more and more evidence and more and more experiments that we can conduct that show that the world is the way we say it is. But at every turn, we have to make sure that if it's not that way, if the world is not that way, that we're the first ones to tell everybody that it's not that way because otherwise somebody else is beating us. Right. Right. We have to be the ones who, if it turns out that our, if it turns out that our fundamental operating hypothesis is utterly wrong, we got to be the ones who say it first because then we have a whole new fundamental operating of hypothesis course. and we can operate with that too. And that's exciting. That, that's, that, that's journalism, man. The world changes and we are the first ones who can tell you that it changed if we're doing it right. Um, you know, or you have, or you have a hypothesis that can encompass a lot of that change. Your hypothesis includes change somehow. So what did you, what changed for you while you were somehow writing a book, traveling and still being a senior editor at Wired Magazine? Yeah. Well, so I, I maybe made some mistakes there. The family was very patient with, but, um, uh, and sometimes not rightly, not so patient with, but, um, I set out, I think if there is a difference, and maybe this is, I'm slicing this kind of finely, the, 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 the hypothesis of the book is that like that, that alcohol shows up at every, um, every major turning point in the sciences and science and technology and humanity, you can find a booze angle where like studying booze or studying things related to it are what led to some quantum leap in the sciences. And and for example, well, um, for example, figuring out, uh, that yeast were the agent behind fermentation and understanding that it was enzymes that they made that were the things that actually converted simple sugars into ethanol and carbon dioxide, which is what fermentation is, right? That was the beginning of biochemistry. That was what, made people go like, oh, there's this thing between biology and chemistry and we should study it, um, was trying to understand beer, basically. <laughs> um, because 
human beings had been making it for 10,000 years without knowing how it worked, which is amazing, right? They just said, oh, if you do this and this and this, yeah. you magically get, there's this weird alchemy that happens and you magically get this. It was craft, you know? <laughs> um, and as a, as a, as a, a scientist friend of mine once said, if you're doing, if you're, if you don't have hypothesis, you're not doing science, you're doing arts and crafts. Um, uh, <laughs> okay. You know, so that's one example. So, this, so I, so process. I started with that, but, it, but as I started looking into it, as I started doing research and I started to find a lot of places where if you asked enough questions of the researchers and in a bunch of different fields, they would say, I don't know. So they would say, well, how does fermentation work? And you keep asking, you keep asking. And then you finally get to a place where they say, we don't know how this happens. We don't understand this step. I'm I'm, I'm the first guy who's got a, a fMRI machine set up that can watch, uh, that can, can see with enough resolution to see the different compounds and chemicals and molecules change the amounts as yeast is processing, is metabolizing sugar. And that's, and this is as far as anybody's ever gotten to actually see the intermediate steps of fermentation, but we don't really know. Did that shock and you? And from the sense that you're like, well, surely people must know this. Yeah. And it happened again and again and again until I, and the one that really blew my mind and it still blows my mind is in, in the talking about the effects of ethanol on the body and brain. If you push not even that hard at neuroscientists and say, like, how does ethanol work? Why does ethanol do what it does in the brain? Very quickly, they get to this point where they say, look, unlike all the other recreational drugs that human beings use, however you feel about the legality or morality of that, we use a lot, right? Unlike all the other ones, ethanol is the only one we don't have a mechanism articulated for. We don't really know. Oh, shit. Yeah, exactly. Oh, shit. Really? Wait, really? Because people... 10,000 beer (laughs) drinking of the, really? And they're like, yeah, we're still working on it. And so what I, what I ended up coming to was, was expressing in the book how I felt at that moment, which is that's really exciting. That's great. Like at first I thought, oh crap, what do I say in a book that's about the science of this if we don't know? And the answer is you say, they don't know. And that's awesome, right? Because that's where the action is in science. We don't know is where is the exciting part of doing science. The, 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 the solved stuff is the boring part. The, the stuff that we already know about is, is done. <laughs> it's, it's finished. It's, it's it, until somebody overturns it, which right. happens every so often. Right. But the, but the, the parts where you say, well, we just don't know how that works yet, but we're working on it are the things that make scientists the most excited. Right. That's where careers are made. And that's where, you know, an addition, that's where you're adding to the canon of human knowledge. So, that became an important part of the of the book too, which is to say, like, there are still things we don't know about this thing that you think is so familiar, right? And that's exciting. And did you learn things? Did you uncover things? Did you did you help science? I I don't think I have any help to science. <laughs> I, um, I mean, I I think what I did have to do. I constantly had to come like come home or go to friends and check, and I would say like, did you know? Do people is this widely known? Do people know? And you know, my wife would be like. Nobody knows that. Like you're the you're you're the only non scientist who knows that. You know, and it was just like, did you know that it matters which barley they use for whiskey? If they some barley that they're running out, that the barley strain they're using isn't quite working the way they wanted it to anymore, and it matters when it ripens and how tall the stock is and how many barley corns grow on it. And is that something people? And she'd be like, What are you talking about? Like, no, are you kidding me? Beer make drunk. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't like you brain and you don't like me. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> Sometimes I feel like, you know, if you're thinking about humanity as a whole and not individuals, but humanity as a whole, I think is a lot like Hulk. <laughs> Whereas like when you think of people as a whole, 
do people really understand? I don't know. Hulk smash. Hulk smash. Hulk no Hulk, care. Hulk, Hulk not like. Hulk drunk. Hulk drunk. <laughs> um, so, you know, so, uh, so I think d- I, what, what, you were, what you're uh, rightly asking is whether I broke any news in the book. And I think I would probably be all bummed out and say, like, I don't think I, I, don't think I broke any news. I think I talked about a lot of really interesting science and tried to convey how enthusiastic and interested I was. And, and get that across as like, this is really, this is really cool. Um, but I think also what ends up happening is that now I'm just kind of trying to spread the infection that makes me the most annoying person in the world to have a drink with. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that is your gift. That is a, uh, I, I want to know how, because I also find you to be possibly the most organized person that I know Whoa. in terms of being able to, at least it seems that way from my perspective, because you have a lot of shit to, deal with on your desktop at one time and you still managed to and and uh, you still managed to sort through it all and be able to you know like really look at things both um individually and then holistically and like how everything's fitting together big picture small picture stuff and i heard you talking about i just want you to give people a little bit of the behind the scenes before we wrap it up your like how do you stay organized and what tools i I heard you use evernote Mm -hmm. i just after years and years and years of writing in comedy notebooks i finally and and i gave evernote so many chances and i could never connect with it as a stand-up writer and i just finally reconnected with it and i am really enjoying it but how do you use you know do you use tagging systems do you use notebooks do you use like what what other apps programs do you use so um I would say just broadly about the, these kind of productivity apps and other approaches to productivity, whether it's something on your computer or pieces of paper, you know, um, moleskin notebooks, whatever that like, there is this learning curve of when you start to use them. And I think it's easy to fall into the trap of trying to learn a new one to procrastinate against doing the thing that you're actually supposed to do. <laughs> I tried to, um, yeah, well, so I tried to use, um, for the, for this book, I tried to use uh, Scrivener, which is a writing That's app, how I wrote my book. Right. And, uh, and DevonThink, which is, um, like a souped up Evernote that also has some AI built into it to make connections for you and does a whole bunch of other things too. And I tried to learn both of them and got to a point where I realized like, you know, I actually have to be writing right now. <laughs> um, so I'm going to go back to word and that's how this is going to be. And maybe next time Scrivener, you know, right. it's still, still on my computer. Um, very powerful tool, but just one that I couldn't get behind fast enough. Right. So I use, um, I use Evernote to collect a lot of stuff. And mm-hmm. I, I also still have some paper notebooks, um, that I'll write down things and, and scribble possible outlines for stuff in a leather brown notebook, kind of like a moleskin, but I have a different one that I like, um, personal choice. Right. Uh, I use Evernote because it, um, because it'll let me collect a lot of different kinds of media mm-hmm. that I used to have to like make color copies of and then cut out and tape into the paper Ooh. notebook, mm-hmm. which I used to do a lot of. Because um, I like uh, I'll keep maps and uh, and pictures and labels and uh, as well as typing notes and stuff that I get off the web. You know, pull a screen or something um, that's related, and then I have you know a couple hundred tags. So things are getting tagged with five or six different tags. Um, and I was using for, for journal articles, I use a program called Mendeley. There's also something called papers. There are a few applications out there primarily used by academics to sort through because now you can, if you have the right library access, you can get PDFs of any journal article. Um, so sometimes I'm able to catch that library access and other times you can call the researcher. Anybody can call a researcher. If you see a paper and say, Hey, would you mind sending me a PDF of that article? And they'll say, yeah, I'd be happy that somebody cares, you know, to wants to read this thing. So that's a way to keep those. And again, it has tagging. You can also take notes and highlight stuff. And that, I use that a lot with the book. So I would highlight in that as a reminder. So like in my outlines, 
to myself, which I did a lot of hand, handwritten and also typed in Word. I would point to a particular paper that I wanted to talk about. And then I could go to that paper and see what I'd highlighted um, to type in. Um, and then all these things also are nice because they're shareable. Mm-hmm. So with my fact checker, I could share the whole folder with the fact checker yeah. online. Like, here's all the stuff, you know. Um, I, uh, I kept a, an Excel spreadsheet of all of the sources that I interviewed and all their contact information and whether I'd talked to them and what they talked about for each chapter organized by chapter. So I would have all those phone numbers and emails in one place that I would go back to. And then I would use that also as a kind of to-do list. Cause if there was somebody I really wanted to talk to, I could go back and say, Oh, I haven't talked to them yet. I got to call them again. It's been a week since I called that person. I got to call again. Um, so that was the book stuff. Right. And then there's the, the wired stuff, um, which is, uh, mostly organized by the way the whole magazine is organized. So we have a whole copy flow process, like when you're supposed to do stuff and whether it's done. Um, and I have folders on my desk of like, you know, these are features I want to pitch. These are features that I'm working on right now. This is all the front of book stuff. This is, these are the maps of the front of book that we're working on and that's month to month. So there's a cycle that you can follow. Um, and then there's some video stuff at work too, which we're still working on a good copy flow process for actually, because it's difficult as you know, doing video is a whole new, a whole new thing and uh, very different than doing print. It adds a whole other dimension. If you will. Yes. Um, so, uh, I think that's, I think that's all the, the organizational stuff. I mean, some of it, um, because I, thinking about the structure of an individual story is very different than structuring my day. <laughs> my day I think is structured not, not so well sometimes. Um, but, uh, but fortunately because of the way the magazine is, we are all structuring each other, I think. Yeah. Um, so as we're, as we're wrapping up here, five things that you think if someone, what, what are your five musts? for the creative process. And if you want to make it specifically about writing a, writing an article, what are five questions you should ask or five things that you should do? Uh, Oh boy. Well, so, uh, what's the story, right? Can you tell it as a story? What's the exciting story that you would tell your friend? Hey, I just found this thing out, right? What's that story? Um, notes. I take so many different kinds of notes in so many different places, notebooks, typing, you know, typing in word from interviews, notes that I write to myself, stuff in Evernote, Reminders, okay. you know, um, whatever the to-do list form is, I think that you got to have one of those. Um, thinking time, like reading and thinking time, you collect all this information, you got to go read it and then you got to like chew on it, process it, think about it. You have to carve that time out. I find now I have to carve that time out. It's not as easy as it used to be for me to sort of sit and go like, oh, that connects to that. Oh, right. I have to be like, I'm going away now for a while to ponder, to take notes on the stuff that I have mm-hmm. to read, you know, and write that down. Um, that's three. Uh, it's always good to have sounding boards and other people, you know, who've been through the process that you're going through before, or who are just smart folks who you respect. Mm-hmm. So you can talk to somebody and say, well, what do you think about that? Is this interesting? How would you do that? Um, and, uh, and then I think also like, I'm like a lot of journalists, uh, uh, an inveterate string gatherer. If I see something that's interesting, I capture it somehow. It doesn't matter how. Right. But just keep it. If, as long as it's not like, as long as you're not hoarding in your house, you know, if you can digitally hoard, like hoard, keep hoard your hoard digitally. on, yeah. uh, keep your hoard in a Google doc or on, yeah. on in Dropbox, you know, uh, both of which I use quite a lot of, um, then you, you, you know, you can go back to it. You can return to it and you go th- and every so often you'll go through it and you're like, Oh, right. That was interesting. And actually I just saw something about that. Um, I'm, I'm working on a story right now that I'm supposed to be writing, but I haven't started yet. So I feel guilty. Um, 
where a bunch of where I didn't realize until I got into it that a bunch of research I did for an abortive book project that I never that never went anywhere years ago, seven eight years ago. Actually, all that research comes back into play. It's like, oh wait, this is all that stuff I was doing. I didn't even notice it, but it's kind of about that again. Let me fish that out of wherever I still had it socked away and give it another read and see what you know what I can bring to bear on this new project. Excellent. Respect the data. <laughs> um, Adam's book, Proof: The Science of Booze, is this out? It is. It is. This is the third week. Well done. Thanks, man. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm so excited for you that you that you. We're able to do this in addition to all of your other <laughs> in, incredibly high-pressure responsibilities and in, uh, in addition to having a family and kids. Um, so uh, congratulations. Thanks. I'm, I'm very excited for you. And, and as always, uh, I love that we're friends, and I'm, it's, I'm always so happy to see you and get to talk to you. And I would just call you when, and when I was supposed to be asking you about an article, and we would just talk about fucking movies or... or, or, or paradigm like paradigms and comics or whatever it was that you wanted if you didn't to. have all of these hit tv shows and podcasts and stuff we could do that some more i've you know but okay that's your, if that's where your priorities are all right thanks so much <laughs> thanks chris enjoy your burrito everyone the science of burritos next book all right now leaving nerdist.com enjoy your burrito <laughs> It's all a lighthearted nightmare on our podcast, Morbid. We're your hosts. I'm Alina Urquhart. And I'm Ash Kelly. And our show is part true crime, part spooky, and part comedy. The stories we cover are well-researched. He claimed and confessed to officially killing up to 28 people. With a touch of humor. I'd just like sure. to go ahead and say that if there's no band called Malevolent Deity, that is pretty great. A dash of sarcasm and just garnished a bit with a little bit of cursing. This motherfucker lied like a liar like a liar and if you're a weirdo like us and love to cozy up to a creepy tale of the paranormal or you love to hop in the Wayback machine and dissect the details of some of history's most notorious crimes you should tune in to our podcast morbid follow morbid on the wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts you can listen to episodes early and ad free by joining wondery plus in the wondery app or on apple podcasts